the Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. Continuing our great study in the Gospel of John, we're up to the middle of John chapter 10. If you've got a Bible, turn there. If not, I've got everything up on the screen that you'll need. Uh, Last week, we looked at the Good Shepherd. This week, it jumps two months in time. He still discusses the motif of the sheep and the shepherd. We're going to do a little deep dive there. It's going to be pretty cool this morning. But we know there's a jump of time because of verse 22 where we start. The festival of dedication took place in Jerusalem, and it was winter. Winter is the time of year. That's why I titled the lesson, Life Lessons from Winter. But it's also a season, because it's the dark cold before the final persecution of Christ and the crucifixion coming in the springtime. But we see the festival of dedication as a bunch of Gentiles. You probably don't know what that is. It's the celebration of the revolt of the guy named Judas Maccabees. Uh, The 25th of December, the 25th of Chislev, and the Hebrew calendar in the winter, celebrates the revolt against uh, Atticus Epiphanes, a a Greek king over Israel that was horrible. Uh, He put, uh, he outlawed Judaism. He burned every copy of scripture he could get. He outlawed the Jewish scriptures. Uh, He banned them from sacrificing. He wheeled in a 10-foot statue of the god Zeus into the Holy of Holies. It was the biggest desecration of the temple that ever occurred short of its destruction. And so this uh, rebel, this general uh, named Judas Maccabees got a bunch of uh, Jewish soldiers together They fought him. It lasted about eight days. They finally kicked him out, and resulting was a brief period of Jewish independence. That was celebrated 190 years later, and today it's still celebrated, and it's known as Hanukkah, Festival of Lights, Festival of Dedication, and every year it's celebrated. It brings to mind the story of Judas Maccabees, the time of their independence, the desire of Jews uh, having their own nation again with worldwide influence. And so it's significant, and John mentions it because it was the one time of year they were rabid for the Messiah. It was a recollection of the revolt of Judas Maccabees. It was a recollection of what it was like to be free. It was a recollection of the promises from all of the Hebrew scriptures, the coming Messiah, so they wanted a Messiah. So as the Jewish leaders start talking to Jesus about, are you the guy, are you the Messiah? It's not just them poking him, it's in the context of the culture of them wanting a Messiah at this point of the year. What we would consider Christmas, what they consider Hanukkah, of the Messiah is the greatest aspiration they could have But in their twisted view, it was a political Messiah like David, not the Messiah like Jesus. The other thing that's interesting is that at verse 23, it says Jesus is walking the temple complex in Solomon's colonnade or portico. We know exactly where it is, although it doesn't exist anymore. It's on the western side of the temple complex where I've got the red arrows shows what the where where the side of it is overlooking the, the front part of the temple. It's the western side of the temple complex, so the Kidron Valley is off to the right side of your your screen there. Where I've got the green arrow, that's the Wailing Wall. That's the one part of the wall that still exists. So it is fascinating to me where the Jews go to mourn the mosque and the Dome of the Rock that sits right on top of the western wall. I've always thought it is a wonderful place for Christians to go pray because it's the place where John chapter 10 occurs. The story of John chapter 10 occurs right on top of the Western Wall. So as you see pictures of it, if you ever travel there to pray, think this is where Jesus had this dialogue, not only about who he was, 
but who we are. So the Western Wall has tremendous significance for me that has nothing to do with the Arab mosque that sits on top of it. The Dome of the Rock has nothing to do with the Jewish mourning of the loss of the temple. It has to do with John chapter 10. So I love the Western Wall. I love everything about the Western Wall, but it has everything to do with John chapter 10 and not what everybody else there has to do with it. So just keep that in mind if you ever visit. Uh, this is an artist's drawing of what it would have looked like looking from the temple complex towards the west, the kindred valleys down below. Artist's recollection of the inside. We know from historians like Josephus, the center part had cedar uh, beams on top of it, 50 foot tall. The porticos to the right was a double column of, of uh, stone and marble. If you looked out to the east, you would see the temple complex, and it was open. And the reason why this is where people congregated was it was protected from the elements. If it's raining, you're covered. There's a nice breeze usually blowing through there. All of that has been destroyed with the exception of that. That's two views of the same thing. And I can't tell you with absolute certainty, but I can tell you with pretty good probability that's the only column left from this place we're talking about, Solomon's Portico. They found it off to the side, kind of down in a ditch down in the Kidron Valley. Uh, it's obviously just portions of what would have been there that would have gone up about 40 feet. Uh, but in all likelihood, that's one of the hundreds of marble stone uh, columns that would have supported this area where Jesus was teaching. Let's jump into our text. Verse 24, then the Jews, that means Jewish leaders, surrounded him, or you could translate the Hebrew, encircled him. So this is not to listen. This is to attack him. And they said, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Now, if you've been in our study of John so far, you know he has said over and over and over again, everything he could say about his identity. He's clearly identified himself as the Son of God. He's identified himself as the, the miracle worker from God. He's identified himself as the Son of Man. He's used everything except the declaration, I am the Messiah. So we look at it and we go, what's the big deal? Why didn't he just say, I am the Messiah? The reason why his self-identification wasn't what we would expect it to be is because we do not appreciate how polluted, how mythological their view of the Messiah had become. The reason why on Palm Sunday they cheer and lay down the palm branches and do everything else they did to celebrate him is they bought into the mythology that the Messiah was going to be an earthly king that rules Israel as the world superpower, and they never have to deal with enemies ever again. They want an earthly king. Now, Jesus will do that. That's the millennial reign that Greg's about to preach about. But the whole idea of what's going on here is that this issue of his self-identification was Jesus not wanting to say something that resulted in the wrong reaction to him, which is our earthly king is here. They wanted to see him as the Messiah of Isaiah 53, 54, of Psalm 101. They wanted to, he wanted to see them as the real Messiah promised by God to first of all deal with sin and their relationship with God before he dealt with their political situation. Now, when he talks about how long are you going to keep us in suspense, there is an echo there of the way we deal with things about God we don't like or we don't understand that actually echoes back to the start of the Bible. Because when they say, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you read the rest of John, there's no suspense, right? They don't connect the dots. They don't want to connect the dots. They refuse to believe in the connecting the dots. But who do they blame? They blame Jesus. They're blaming God for their lack of understanding. There's another attempt to blame God. And I'm sorry, my little words got off to the right there a little bit, but it says another attempt to blame God. Remember Genesis chapter 2, Adam in the garden. He's confronted by God. What does Eve say? I ate of the apple. What does Adam say? Is the woman you gave me. Right? Adam blamed her. And it didn't go very well for Adam after that. And it doesn't go very well for us, but we do it all the time. 
one of the realities of mature Christian health is the ability to own personal responsibility. Immature Christian health is blame everybody else for everything you've ever done wrong. Great little life lesson. Blaming God for our sin because of how he made us, the circumstances we find ourselves in, people he put in our lives, Adam referencing Eve, or any other excuse which shifts blame to anything other than us is incredibly dangerous. We have PhDs in blaming other people. It's the way I'm made, it's the my background, it's my lack of this, it's because I went through this tragedy earlier in life, it's because of this person I'm living with, it's because of my parents. We got a billion different excuses. Everybody's got their own excuses. Every single excuse is offensive to God as it is when our children or grandchildren do that same stuff with us. Right When somebody messes up in your family, you want them to own it. You don't want them to point to somebody else. And if your kid does it, there's going to be greater punishment because they're trying to blame somebody else. You want them to own the responsibility. God wants us to own the responsibility. The reality of sin, as we're going to see in a few minutes, is it doesn't kick us out of God's family, but it's going to put us through a discipline process, and it's incredibly dangerous for us to do anything other than own our sin Because the discipline of owning sin is one track. The discipline of pointing your sin at somebody else is another track. It is much more painful. It is much longer. It is horrific compared to the first track of you saying, God, I totally screwed up. This was me. Please forgive me. Why we want to blame God or blame other people or blame our circumstances is beyond me. Cross-reference, 1 John 1.9, if we... Confess our sins. He's faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Every single biblical example of somebody doing that is God working with them to take the next step. Every other example of somebody blaming somebody else, blaming circumstances from Adam all the way to the end of the New Testament never ends well. Maturity lesson for all of us to learn. Verse 25. Jesus responds, I did tell you and you don't believe, Jesus answered them. The works that I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you don't believe because you're not my sheep. I highlighted the first two parts. Jesus said, I told you plainly, you don't believe who I am, all the different things he did. But then he says, the works I do in my Father's name testify about me. What does that mean? That means he prayed before he did these things out loud. And when he did these things, he talked to the person he was doing them to or others about God the Father. It wasn't just about him. So it's a great little theological point here that the issue is not whether God has plainly revealed truth, but rather most people don't like the truth revealed. They just didn't like what he had to say. He had been clear as day, and John documents all of his words, all of his actions that proved his divinity, And they just chose not to accept what was clear truth. The greatest danger, in my opinion, today, 21st century, of living in a post-truth age is our growing inability to frame theological truth as undebatably accurate and instead have it interpreted as mere personal opinion. What am I talking about? It is amazing in our post-truth age that is so focused on opinion and my opinion of this and my opinion of that, that for either social norms, political favoring, or other things, we gravitate now so many times as evangelical Christians to opinion rather than objective truth. I am amazed at the polarization of the Western news cycle. And so many people that want to blame liberal media or mainstream media, and that's a different lesson for a different day. But for somebody to reject objective, factual truth because of the news network that it's on, or reject objective, factual truth because the person that they're talking to is of a certain political persuasion, is the single most uh, dangerous attack on truth I've ever seen in human history. Because what it does is it narrows down to personal opinion every issue in life. There is no longer absolute truth. 
So we are very comfortable of that in a political realm where somebody just says, well, I'm just going to ignore objective truth because I believe this is the way it is. Or in a social realm or in a relational realm that says, I'm just going to ignore objective truth about that person because I've got an opinion about them that's favorable or unfavorable. But you translate that into theology and it gets real dangerous real quick because all of a sudden you have forfeited the right to talk about absolute objective truth, true truth. And so in one realm, opinion is totally fine for you and that's all there is. In another realm, you want to talk about true truth and the people you're trying to talk to discount it because of how you apply opinion to everything else in life. Folks, I've said it before, I'll say it again. We have got to be a people of true truth. There's got to be objective truth. There's got to be undebatable truth. It's got to transcend our theological beliefs and go to every other aspect of life. It's why we have to be honest in the things we say, even if we don't like the implications, even if it reflects poorly on us or our other preferences in life. We've got to be people of truth. If that's not our standard, you have zero hope of communicating your belief in Jesus Christ to anyone else because to them, it's just personal opinion. So when Jesus says you just choose not to believe, he's saying you just want to live in opinion land. You don't want to live in objective truth land. And we can read it in scripture and say, amen. We apply it in our lives in the 21st century and all of a sudden we go upside down. Be careful. Jesus says in verse 26, you are not my sheep. Now, this picks up on why John puts this here at the end of chapter 10 to connect it with two months earlier in the start of chapter 10. At the start of chapter 10, he says, I am the shepherd, you are my sheep. We talked about that last week. He picks it up here again. Two months later, John puts the two together because they're thematic. And the life lesson here of what Jesus is talking about is being God's faithful sheep requires more than self-identification. It requires our actions to match our belief. The reason I say that is because Jesus could look around that portico where he is, that Solomon's porch, and see a bunch of disciples of his that are just deadly quiet watching in fear and see everybody else around him that's, that's a Jewish leader being hostile to him and seeing the rest of the crowd just kind of watching the entertainment, watching the conflict. And the actions of everyone there define who is his sheep and who's not his sheep. If you look in scripture, it is crystal clear. And the reason it's crystal clear is because God is the only omniscient one in the universe. God knows our thoughts. God knows what's the reality of our minds and our souls. To the rest of the world who's not omniscient, the only way to figure out if you're a believer, if you're a sheep, of Jesus is by your actions. The greatest proof text of this comes from Hebrews chapter 11, where it discusses the greatest people in, in biblical faith. And for every single person, it does the exact same thing. It does not do a diagnostic of their heart. It does not do a diagnostic of their mind. It does a diagnostic on the life lesson I just gave you. Do their actions match their self-identification? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. I jumped to verse 7. By faith, Noah built an ark to deliver his family. Verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed and went out to a place he was going to receive as an inheritance. I jumped to verse 17. By faith, Abraham offered up Isaac. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob blessed each one of his sons of Joseph, and he worshiped. Verse 22, by faith, Joseph mentioned the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions concerning his bones. It continues in verse 24. By faith, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God. By faith, he left Egypt behind. By faith, he instituted the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood. Verse 31, by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, received the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who disobeyed. The most important passage of Hebrews chapter 11 are the verbs. And the verbs are action verbs of what they did that let us look at history and gauge, were they a believer? Were they a sheep? Did they have faith? What kind of faith did they have? And it's the kind of faith that moves. So if that's the question, of if you're a sheep, it is not a matter of self-identification. Saying, I'm a sheep, I'm a believer of Jesus Christ. That self-identification, we can all do that, it's all easy. The question is, if it's a matter of how you live your life, then what does that look like? 
right? If we've got sheep on the side of a mountain in Texas or like Scotland, like I was talking about last week, you know, if the sheep had enough intelligence to self-identify as a sheep, it wouldn't matter a hill of beans if they ignored the shepherd, if they ignored the flock, if they just did what they want to do, wander off on their own. That is a meal waiting to happen for someone else, right? That sheep is not going to stay with the flock. That sheep is going to get killed. So the question for us is, what are the characteristics of Christ's sheep? What are the characteristics of Christ's followers or Christ's believers? He outlines them in verses 27 through 30. He says in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. So if you want a diagnostic of whether or not you are Jesus' sheep, the question is, do you hear his voice? Now, I got to say at the outset, I have prayed a whole lot of my life, as far as I can remember every day of my life. And there are times I have felt I am not getting an answer to prayer. God's being silent. I'm not hearing it. I have decided that was my failure, not God's silence. Theological point. Through the Holy Spirit inside of each of us, Jesus is always speaking to us. The only question is, are we listening as well as we should? Why do I say that? Because if I look at Jesus' time on earth, what was it like? Did he get 12 disciples, send them off, and have them join him Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock for a couple of hours of teaching and training? No. Did he get 12 disciples, give them all tasks, and say, you meet me at 9.30 on Sunday mornings and we'll do a little church? He was with them all day, every day. He ate with them. He walked with them. He worked with them. He did ministry with them. If he sent them out to do a little project, they came right back and they got something else. He slept with them. He was with them all the time. They talked about the mundane. They talked about the weather. They talked about politics. If they had sports, they talked about sports. They talked about the simplest things of life and the grandest things of life because they were friends. They were close. And so I look at scripture and I see in the mundane incredible encouragement for us because I believe the reason we have a Bible in our homes, in our cars, in our offices, in our laps is we can talk to us anytime we want to open it. And the reason why we have the avenue of prayer anytime we are consciously awake is we can always communicate with them. So we live in a noisy world, TV blaring, radio blaring, people around us all the time our distraction, our focus, our priorities, we don't hear what he's trying to say. I believe in my own life so many times what he whispers to me is, keep on going, or I'm right here, I'm right here, I'm right here. Or I start asking for stuff, and the whisper is, in time, not yet, we'll get there. Right? When I say I don't hear God, I'm what I'm saying is, I don't hear God saying to me what I want him to say. Right. That's really what's going on. We say, I've been praying for a month about fill in the blank, this relationship, this job, this house, this whatever. What we're saying when we say God is silent is he's not telling me what I want to hear. Ignoring him speaking to me when I open my Bible, ignoring him speaking to me when I pray, ignoring him speaking to me when I'm in fellowship and worship and Bible study. We just ignore all that saying I'm praying about X and he's not giving me the Y answer I want. That's not how he communicates. So when we're sensitive to him whispering to us, I'm here, keep going, not yet, we want to discount that, not realizing how powerful that is that the creator of the universe is with me, saying just keep on going, I'm here, not yet. Look at the next point, characteristics of the sheep. He says, I know them. I could cross-reference other scripture if I had time and talk about how he knows the most intimate details of you. Great little life lesson theological point here is, if he knows you more intimately than you know yourself, why do you pray as if everything in your life is a surprise to him? What do the Psalms say? He knows the number of hairs on your head. Now, for a couple of us, counting that's a little bit easier than others. <laughs> But even for those of us where counting is a little bit easier, that's still pretty daunting. That, we still don't know how many hairs we have on our head because they fall out and grow every day. If he knows the number of hairs on our head to the number, 
Don't you think he knows the bigger stuff in life we're dealing with? And that's the whole point of Psalms. If he knows you better than yourself, what's your hang-up? Application for us today, why do you pray as if he doesn't know your health situation, your economic situation, your relational stresses, your vocational stresses? We pray to him as if we're telling him something he doesn't already know. The proper prayer is, God, you know what's going on. Here's why I'm in anguish. Help me with my fear, my anxiety, my trepidation, whatever it is we're going through. We don't have to tell God what we're going through, much less tell him how to fix it. Look at the third factor. They follow me. So they hear his voice. Got to get away and get silent. He knows us. We got to stop praying about like we're telling him surprises. He says, they follow me. They do something with it. Application, following the shepherd involves moment-by-moment awareness of where he's leading. I think the greatest mistake we make as mature Christians is thinking it's limited to the big things in life. We forget the little things in life. For me as a lawyer, it's walking into a meeting. For me as a lawyer, it's client calls me, I'm about to pick up the phone, how should I handle this? I'm about to go into a you know, one-on-one meeting with somebody. I'm about to sit down and write something important. You know, all the little things in life I have learned to say a quick prayer about, to think about, to think about, you know, how does God want me to handle this? Even though it's not particularly spiritual, it's more legal. And we've all got to do more of that with our relational communication, with our time choices, with all the little mundane things in life. If you contemplate the Holy Spirit in our soul, in the essence of our being, that means following him means more than saying, I'm a Christian, I'm going to church on Sundays. I'm a Christian, I'm going to pray over dinner. I'm a Christian, I'm not going to cuss. You know, whatever it may be. And we lose sight of the moment-by-moment, minute-by-minute aspects of following him. We seem to think he doesn't care about the mundane, but if he didn't care about the mundane, he wouldn't live in the essence of our soul. He would just hang out and communicate with us when he had to communicate with us. The reason he is in the essence of your soul, think about it in terms of being a part of your DNA, is he cares about the mundane. He cares about every thought, every location, every communication, every relationship, all the little things we think is just doing life is the essence of why he's in our soul. Fourth point, he says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish ever. In the one sentence, he talks about eternal life, which by its very definition means they'll never perish, right? So it's it's redundant. And then he's triple redundant when he says never. And he's going to go quadruple redundant here in just the next verse. But on this verse, I want to focus on the what I highlighted. Because we can look at eternal life and just say, oh, that's great. I know I'm going to spend eternity in heaven. And we lose sight of the introduction that is how we have that. The way we have that is grace. He gives us what we do not deserve. That's the definition of grace. Okay? We love that idea. We think that's the greatest aspect of us being a Christian. We got grace. We can comprehend grace. The teaching point I want to emphasize here is what is most precious to you is not only incomprehensible, it is offensive to a non-believer. Although grace is the most precious thing we treasure as believers, to the lost it is genetically offensive. Look around our culture and how we describe things. We say, if it's free, it can't be good. We look at something and we say, if it's free, that's too good to be true. We look at adages as Westerners or Americans. And what's our motto? Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. We're independent. We're free. We're going to do it ourselves. Right? That's the American motto since 1776. In our culture, that's just expressing the way we're genetically in sin. The idea to the lost is if you got to get to heaven, you got to do something for it. It's not a free gift. You got to work for it. You got to do good good deeds. You got to go to church. You got to do penance. You got to do all kinds of things 
that every other world religion has people jumping through hoops in order to justify righteousness with the Creator. Christianity says it has nothing to do with you. In fact, if you try to do those things, it's the equivalent to God of a dirty diaper. It's a gift from him to us. We treasure that. We love that. Don't lose sight of the fact to the rest of the world that is offensive. They don't get it. They're like, free gift, you're arrogant. Free gift, you're delusional. It takes God working in them to see the beauty of grace. Now, that's amazing to most Christians because to us, grace is so simplistic. It's John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. That's kindergarten stuff. To us, we just wrap ourselves up in God's grace. To the non-believers, it is genetically offensive. So it's just reminded us, we got to share our faith. we got to remember what we wrap ourselves up as kindergarten wonderfulness, they see as outrageously offensive because you're telling them you can't help yourself. You can't work your way into God's grace. You can't do anything to make yourself more appealing to God. And when you try, it's offensive to God. That's offensive to the non-believers. I love this point. What I described is quadruple redundant. After he says, I gave them eternal life. They'll never perish. No, not ever. He says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of their father's hand. I am willing to bet that in your entire Christian life, you have never contemplated yourself being held in two separate sets of hands. Jesus Christ is holding me and you on a minute-by-minute basis, and God the Father is holding his hands, which is also holding us. Now, as a practical matter of just teaching, just kind of human communication, when he does this quadruple redundancy. You got eternal life. No one's going to perish. No, not ever. No one's going to snatch them out of my hands. No one's going to snatch them out of the Father's hands. As a carpenter, Jesus is doing what a carpenter day would call clenching the nail. You drive it through to make your point, and then you turn it over and you drive it down. It can't come out. It's called clenching the nail. And as a carpenter, verbally, that's what Jesus is doing. That nail gets driven down, so it is never moving. It cannot, it cannot, no one can pull it out because it's been clenched. I looked for a painting of Jesus' hands holding us and God's hands under Jesus' hands. If a painter's painted it, I couldn't find it despite hours of internet research. So if you find one, share it with me. This was about as close as I could get. But the two hands equal double eternal security. And the two hands equal double daily security. Because so many times when we feel in trouble, we feel anxious, we feel like we're at the end of our rope, what's going to happen to us? We feel like we're just out on our own. It's imagining a future without God. The picture I encourage you based on John 10 is think of yourself in Jesus' hands and below his hands, the hands of God the Father. A double layer of protection that signals a couple of things. What does this signal about how precious you are when Jesus uses this terminology to communicate what it means to be his sheep? He knows them and they're so precious there's two sets of hands to make sure they are temporally and eternally secure. And think about what it says about his love for us, his tenderness for us, that's going to have two hands. Those who think the doctrine of eternal security encourages people to sin, underestimate the character of God. What I mean by that is what I just described with two hands and eternal security. Some people push back on me and they say, wait a minute, you're telling me I can do anything I want. I can go to Vegas for a month and have the most hedonistic experience and do everything I possibly want, even if I go to jail, and I'm not going to lose my eternal security. And I would say that's the promise. Now, don't take me wrong. It does not mean it might not fracture the relationship. Don't get me wrong. It might not mean there's massive consequences. You can have huge consequences reaping what you sow. 
but does it mean that your eternal security is jeopardized? It does not. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say you have the desire to invite me over to your house to babysit your children or grandchildren. Okay? You might think he's a lawyer, runs his own law firm, teaches my class. He's got to be a good babysitter. <laughs> and you go off to dinner and you go off to the movie and I'm there with your kids, your grandkids, and they're young enough, they need a babysitter as good as me. And I sit down with them and I say, we got to have a little talk. If you disobey your parents, and if you disobey me who's standing in the place of your parents, they're going to put you up for adoption. <laughs> they are going to kick you out of this home. You are going to be on your own. And you will never speak to your parents again. Now, we laugh, but if I did that, you guys would never invite me over again, right? Right? That's comically offensive. It's like, what? You told my kids, my grandkids, what? Right? What would your reaction be? Your reaction would be, you don't know me. I would never do that. Right? There's all kinds of ways you deal with your children, your grandchildren's disobedience, but that's not it. Right? Adopting them out to somebody else is not an option. Abandoning them on the street corner is not an option. You're going to discipline them. You're going to love them. Even if it's harsh love, you're going to mature them. But you're not going to disown them when they're disobedient. Even if they leave you in a temporal sense, you're not leaving them. And why do we think our love for our own children and our grandchildren is any different than God the Father's love for us? So for somebody says that idea of eternal security means I can be in wanton sin, therefore it's bad theology. You don't understand the character of God. It is a wonderful picture of powerful hands because the hands that hold us are the hands that created the universe and run the universe down to the most minute level on a daily basis. The powerful hands that keep the electrons and the neutrons spinning are the hands that hold you in your bank account. They are loving hands. We would picture them in an anthropomorphic sense of warm and soft and caring and just what we love to be wrapped up in. So many times when I as a Christian try to think about how I'm hanging on to God, it's me hanging on to the equivalent of his leg. The better picture is not me hanging on to him, it's him holding me up. And maybe I'm hanging on to part of his hand, but I'm not hanging on to his leg as he walks around like you do with your grandkids or your kids. It's him holding me in his hands. But they're also guiding hands. Because if I'm in the hands, if I want to go somewhere where those hands aren't going, I got to get out and walk on my own. If I just let those hands move me around and I'm just obedient and follow wherever he leads me around, then it becomes real easy not to get stressed out about where is this going, right? If my terminal diagnosis, you've got a medical condition that is going to kill you, stresses me out, all I have to picture is the hands that are holding me, saying, as we go through this health issue, I'm in his hands. He's going to carry me into the doctor's office. He's going to carry me into surgery. He's going to carry me into wherever I am. If it's the unemployment situation, the debt situation, the relational fracture, and I wonder, where am I going in light of this relationship? Where am I going in light of this financial problem if I worry about those hands carrying me to the next place? I don't have to worry about where I'm walking. I just have to sit tight in those hands. It's a wonderful picture. He says in verse 30, the father and I are one. One of the fascinating things about this is the way he uses the one and why he uses this phrase. It gets a little complicated anytime we start talking about the Trinity, anytime we start talking about God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It kind of warps our brain. We're just talking about this verse today. It's not a lesson on the Trinity, although we could. His use of the word one, since I'm teaching you the text, I got to stop and give you a little tiny, tiny, tiny bit of Greek. Because you could look at this and do what some heretics have said over the years that has said, Jesus is just a manifestation. He really wasn't a man. He's just God manifested. Or other heretics that have said, God just embodied him. He really wasn't divine. The Greek gives us a little bit of insight here on this word one, because in Greek, like in some other languages, English a little bit, but other languages, 
you can have masculine words, you can have feminine words, you can have neuter words that are either neither one, and they mean different things. And you, you give them a masculine meaning or a feminine meaning for different reasons. Same thing in Greek. In Greek, the word used here is neuter. One in neuter is hen, H-E-N, as opposed to the masculine, H-E-I-S, which would mean masculine, a person. The reason that significance is describing oneness in purpose, oneness in essence, oneness in will, rather than a oneness in person. So what that's describing is purpose, essence, and will is kind of by analogy, if you're going to discipline your kids, you can have a oneness with your spouse. This is how we're going to discipline. If you say, we're going to go eat, like Greg was talking about, cornbread right? You can have a oneness in will. We're going to get cornbread or whatever it is, right? You can kind of wrap your brain around what, what, what it means for two different people to have a oneness. That's what Jesus is describing. Now, think about this for just a minute. You read this, he's talking about sheep, and out of the blue, he says, the Father and I are one. We look at that in English and we go, eh, okay, next verse. To a Jewish audience, he just made the most amazing, powerful, profound statement that could ever be made. Because remember how this started. They said, you tell us who you are. This is how he ends. He says, the Father and I are one. To a Jewish audience, why is that a big deal? You may have heard this. You may not have heard this. But you got to understand on this point, in Jewish practice, the thing they say over and over and over and over, their equivalent of John 3.16, right? Their equivalent of something that's in their vocabulary and their culture so much, you, you think it's almost inbred since birth, is the Shema. The Shema is Deuteronomy chapter 6. And what they say in 6.4, every time they pray is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In Hebrew, the more literal translation is Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Jesus stands up in the leading Jewish scholars on the planet Earth, and he says, the Father and I are one. To a bunch of Jews, that is either the most revolutionary thing they've ever heard, or as a non-believer, it sends them into a psychotic rage. And for this audience, it was the latter. Next verse. Again, they picked up rocks to stone him. They knew exactly what he was communicating. There was no disagreement. There was no misunderstanding. He said, the Father and I are one. They've prayed the Shema that day. They prayed the Shema the prior day, the day before that, every day of their life. He stands up and says, the Shema, the Father and I are one. And they are ready to kill him on the spot in the temple portico. They're picking up rocks in the temple to not let him off that plateau. And Jesus replied, I've shown you many good works from the Father. Which of these good works are you going to kill me for? Now, this is, first of all, an amazing of level confidence, right? This is amazing. But number two, there's a pretty significant point here about what he doesn't say. Think about this. If you and I were there and we're having the conversation and you uttered this and they basically pick up rocks to kill you because they think you have said you are God. What would you or I do? Wait, 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 wait. You guys have misunderstood me. Put your rocks down, right? That's how we react if they have misreacted, right? So what Jesus did not deny is their reaction thinking he's putting himself equal as one in, in essence, will, everything else, with God the Father. He didn't deny that at all. They had the exact right reaction because in, in, in Hebrew scriptures, if you do that, you deserve to be killed unless it's true. Second point, his miracles validated his claims. Every time in scripture, from Genesis all the way through Revelation, if there is a miracle described, it is not for the purpose of the miracle doer. It's not for the purpose of the miracle receiver. It's to validate the person of God. 
all of the miracles in the Old Testament validated the message of God through his messenger. All the miracles of Jesus validated the messenger, the message of God through his messenger. Peter, Paul, all the disciples, the things they did were not normative. They validated the message of God through the messenger. And Jesus says, I've done these miracles. Which one are you going to kill me for? Was it healing the leper? Was it healing the blind man? Was it healing the lame man? Was it walking on the water? Was it calming the waves? Was it turning the water into wine? Which one was it? They answer in verse 33, we're not stoning you for a good work, but blasphemy because you being a man, make yourself to God. So that's interesting. Their approach is they recognize his claim of divinity and they say it's blasphemy. They ignore the miracles. They ignore the good things you've done. Now, if you read this, this is a little bit confusing, so i got to take a minute to describe this. Jesus says in verse 34, isn't it written in your scripture, and he quotes, although there's no quotation marks in, in ancient literature, he says, I said you are gods, close quote. If he called those whom the word of God came to gods, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say you're blaspheming to the one the Father set apart and sent into the world because I said I am the Son of God? What in the world does that mean? That's like the hardest passage in all of John. I can teach it to you in two minutes. There's a passage in Psalms, Psalm 82, where Jesus, or sorry, where God is describing through the psalmist the judges God appointed to judge the people. They became wicked, but they were acting as God's instruments. They were acting as anointed and ordained and put in place by God. They were acting as people doing, supposed to be doing God's will. God calls them out for their wickedness and says, you're going to die. But in the scriptures, it says, God says, speaking to the psalmist, I said, you are gods. Or we would translate that from Hebrew to English, God-like. Okay, but it's small g, plural, you are gods. You are like gods. And you are sons of the Most High. You're sons of God. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possess all the nations. So that's a reference to those that God has said are co-regents. They're rulers that God put in place. They're sinful, so he's going to judge them. Jesus just looks back at this reference and he says, wait a minute. There's a reference in the scriptures, which cannot be broken, where the scriptures call a man, call judges, gods, small g, and says, you're sons of the Most High. So Jesus says, hey, bright, intelligent scholars. If Psalm 82 says that, and scripture can't be broken, why are you trying to kill me for saying I am one with the Father and I'm the Son of God? Now, at that point, it, their brains just warp, right? Jesus answered, and when he says all this, he emphasizes scripture cannot be broken. Don't lose sight of the fact that Jesus' view of scripture is so high that every letter of every word matters. What he just said was hung up on the word S at the end of Elohim, the plurality of Elohim, gods with a small g. And he says, even the letter of one word cannot be broken. The view of scripture of Jesus is as high as it could possibly be. He held scripture to such sacredness that every time in life he was challenged, he's quoting from memory, Deuteronomy, Psalms, Isaiah. He knew it cold. The reason his earthly ministry, I believe, didn't start until 30 wasn't he was taking care of Mary. It was his deepening in scripture for the decade of his adult before he started his earthly ministry at 30. He was spending those adult years like he spent his teenage years in deep study of scripture. So for him, it just became the essence of life. It is fascinating to me that even in Protestant Christian churches today, Scripture is being carved up with an exacto knife. The truth of Scripture has gone away. The promise of Scripture has gone away. It becomes this idolized sense of, of truth, but it's not practical. If you look at those denominations, particularly in Europe, that have put scripture on a low basis. They basically say scripture is not authentic. It's not truthful. It's not 
inerrant, those churches in Europe and in America are dying. I can go into most cathedrals, I can go into most churches in Europe on any Sunday morning, and they are shells. There's a handful of old people clinging to a tradition, but there is no life, there's no vitality, there's no application, there are no young people, there's no kids, there's no young families. It's a shell of a dying generation. And you just have to look around the Western world to see the effect of congregations and denominations that lower Scripture. You read John 10, you read the rest of the New Testament, you cannot hold those views. Jesus held it to absolutely the highest regard he could possibly have. You want a great cross-reference? Jeremiah 23, 29 is not my word like fire declares the Lord and like a hammer which shatters a rock. Fire purifies, a hammer shapes, knocks away the impurities. It's critical. Look what he says in verse 37. If I'm not doing my father's works, don't believe me. But if I am doing them and you don't believe, believe in the works. This way you'll know and understand that the father is in me and I'm in the father. Then they were trying again to seize him, yet he eluded their grasp. I highlighted the word believe because I want to talk for just a minute about what he's talking about. Because in scripture, the word he uses is a Greek word describing a particular type of belief. And I want to describe two things that it's not one thing that it is. The type of belief is a belief in something. Let me use my friend Butch as an illustration. There's one Greek word, if I believe, Butch is prompt. He's always in class. He always sets up as I'm getting here. He is prompt. I believe in something, his promptness. Okay, that's one Greek word. Greek number two is I believe in someone. Butch, I've known for years, he's my friend, we're co-workers in ministry, and he's never let me down. I believe in him. Those two things are a different Greek word than the final Greek word, which is believe on someone. Now, me believing his promptness is just me thinking highly of him. Me believing in someone is believing because I've seen certain things and I can trust him a little bit more. Believing on him means I say, hey, buddy, stand behind me. I'm going to close my eyes and fall backwards and you're going to catch me. Right. That is my belief, not in an ideal and not to someone that I just spent time with. Right. That's my belief on someone. I am placing my essence in his hands. He's going to stand behind me. I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to fall and I'm going to believe he's going to catch me. That last point is the word Jesus is using. Don't fall into me if you don't believe what I've done. But if you've seen what I've done, fall into me. I'll catch you. I won't let you go. It's kind of drawing back those idea of hands, this idea of catching we saw with the double hands. Life lesson here is when it comes to belief, others see our actions more than they hear our words. Because I can tell you I believe in Butch and him being prompt. I can tell you I believe in him as being a responsible coworker. But if you see me fall, close my eyes, blindfold myself, fall back into his arms, you would all say, yep, you believe in Butch. Right. My words don't matter. Hill of beans to you. Watch me fall into his arms. It's the same thing in life. You can talk about your Christianity all day long, but until somebody sees you walk through illness. They don't believe your words until they see you walk through the death of someone you love. They don't believe your words until they see you walk through a relationship fracture. They don't see your word. They don't hear your words. So the actions are what people gravitate to, not our words. It ends on this point. We'll wrap up with this. It says, so he departed again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing earlier, and he remained there. Many came to him and said, John never did a sign, but everything John said about this man was true, and many believed him in there. He got up and he left Jerusalem, and he's not coming back until Palm Sunday. He just heads out into the countryside. Life lesson. There's tremendous value in returning to places of God's prior blessing in your life. The place he's going to is where he interacted with John the Baptist. The place he is going to is the desert where he spent the 40 days of temptation, where he inevitably would have had memories of what God the Father did to sustain him during that time. Being with him, comforting him, giving him reassurance, 
All of that was a place of blessing for him. There is a word I want to share with you if you've never heard it before on this exact point. It's the Hebrew word Ebenezer. Ebenezer comes from 1 Samuel 7, 12, where it says, Thus far the Lord's helped us, and it's the building of a monument to remember something God has done. An Ebenezer for them was stacking up stones in the Jordan River. They call that an Ebenezer. We hear the word and we think of Charles Dickens and the Christmas Scrooge, right? That's Ebenezer. Get that idea out of your brain. Ebenezer is a place where God blessed you. And when you go back to it, it's a reminder, God bless me. It's the reason I like going back to Waco where I went to college and law school because I can go to places and I can see my Ebenezer where God blessed despite a really difficult time in my life. I like going back to places where my parents lived when I was a kid. I like to see the church where my dad pastored. I like to see the house we lived in. I like to see different places I went with a kid because those are Ebenezers to me and they remind me not of necessarily playing with my friends but of a place where God did wonders. It's impossible to study the life of Christ and not see the pattern, practice, and blessing of having a personal or small group retreat. This is one of numerous examples. If I was doing a lesson on biblical retreat, I'd cross-reference the Gospels a dozen times because Jesus did this repeatedly. But this is the example we get in John of him going to a retreat. It's the reason why we're supposed to have daily quiet time where you retreat to an office or a chair or a corner of the house and just have one-on-one time in prayer and scripture. It's the reason why I think all of us as individuals need to take a couple of hours or a day or a weekend and retreat by yourself. It's why couples need to retreat, not vacation, but retreat to go away, get away from the patterns of life, get away from radio and TV and just retreat. We'll do another lesson another day about how to do that, but I just didn't want people to miss the point here in the winter of life, in the darkness of what is coming. Jesus didn't soldier on and say, I'm going to stay in Jerusalem until they kill me. He has a time of retreat for those around him, for continued ministry, to refresh himself. Knowing what was coming, he has a time of retreat that precedes a time of testing. Let me give you some application. We'll wrap up. The hands of him around us. I want to focus a little bit on the hands of Christ, the hands of Jesus holding us in the the lesson. They're outstretched hands. They're outstretched to us when we're non-believers. We come to him. They're still outstretched as believers. when We crawl away from the hands and need to come back. They're always open. They are wounded hands. You know, it's fascinating at the resurrection His body was totally healed at the resurrection. But think about what Thomas saw and what Thomas did. Thomas wanted to touch the holes in his hands and wanted to touch the pierce in his side. Now, pause for just a minute and think, could God the Father in the resurrection have not made those things go away? Of course. Why leave them? Because the wounded Savior, is the empathetic savior. When you say no one understands the fear I'm going through, no one understands the anxiety I'm going through, no one understands the pain I'm going through, no matter how weird your circumstance is, there's a guarantee the wounded hands of the savior know exactly what you're going through, know before you pray about it and carry you through what you think no one else has ever gone through. Final point, they're comforting hands. The fascinating thing to me about the post-resurrection descriptions of Christ in every single description, he does one thing. He touches. He touches the disciples. He touches the believers. He touches his mother. You see it all through the book of Acts when it describes the resurrection. At the very ends of the Gospels, it discuss the resurrection. It is fascinating to me that the power of touch in Jesus' humanity and the resurrection, so they would know the comfort of their resurrected Lord. He touched them all. It wasn't an apparition. It wasn't a spirit. It wasn't a ghost. It was a person that can touch. And that person that touched the followers, his family, his brothers, they were converted. Touch us. The hands that hold us are comforting hands that deal with our anxiety, deal with our stress, deal with our troubles, and deal with us all the way to the point of death. 
John chapter 11. You've heard it before. Next week, I'm going to teach you stuff you've never heard before. Life lessons from the story of Lazarus. You want to learn some stuff you've never learned before? Join me next week. It's going to be good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the chance to say hallelujah. Thanks for the chance to praise your name, to praise you. We thank you for Greg's message this morning. We thank you for our time in Bible study in John chapter 11. We just pray as we go through this week, we would think about those double hands of daily comfort, daily outstretched hands, daily protection that lead us presence in heaven at the end of our lives. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for taking care of us. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. See y'all next week. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved.